Well, ever since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in those early days of creation, this world has been marred by sin. Broken, in fact, by the sins of men and women. And although human culture constantly changes, human nature never changes. Which is why you can examine any group of people in any culture, in any part of the world, at any point in history. And you will not only find those people committing sins, but you will generally find them committing the same sins over and over and over again. Which is true of all people in all places, including often Christians in the church. In A.D. 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome because of the unrest that was being stirred up within uh, the Jewish community over the gospel of Jesus Christ at the time because the Jews who had not yet come to Christ were taking issue with those Jews who had, and it was causing considerable strife between them. And so Claudius had them banished from the city. And as a result of that displacement of the Jewish community, which is uh, mentioned in Luke Acts, uh, by Luke in Acts 18.2, uh, it's also described, by the way, in greater detail um, by the first century Roman historian Suetonius. Uh, but as a result, the churches in and around Rome, which were established by Jewish Christians, were suddenly under the sole control and guidance of the Gentile Christians who remained. And as you can imagine, things changed in the church significantly. The way they worshipped, uh, what they taught concerning the Mosaic Law, how they evangelized, all of that was different from the Jewish Christians to the point that as the Jews slowly began returning to Rome over the years, their issues weren't so much with each other anymore as they were with the Gentiles who were running the churches there because the Jewish Christians still observed the Old Covenant Law while the Gentile Christians lived free from the Mosaic restrictions. And so there was a lot of, uh, sort of, of finger-pointing between them about who was actually living according to God's word and who was still under the bondage of sin. And yet the truth is, at the bottom of all of it, these Christians were far more concerned about validating themselves than they were in building each other up. And as a result, the Apostle Paul penned his now famous letter to the Christians in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles in the church, where in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Let me just remind you that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, hey fellas, you can stop pointing your fingers at each other now because no matter what your background is, no matter what your upbringing was like, no matter how religious or irreligious you may be, every single one of you is guilty. Broken, in fact, by sin. And the reason that statement by Paul should matter to us is because it is as true today as it was then. In fact, from the first bite of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden right up to today, every single human being on earth, every single one of us has been deeply and profoundly affected by sin. Both the sins of others and our own. And of course, although we cannot do much about the sins of others, we can always do something about our own because sin is always a choice that we make. Because human beings have been making that choice to sin ever since the beginning of time, the world as a result is broken. 
It was broken in the first century and it's broken in the 21st century. Broken by a lie, you understand, because ultimately that's what sin is. It is believing in a lie more than you believe in the truth. In fact, underlying every sin ever committed by every human being throughout all of time, there is a lie underneath it, something that someone believed in more than they believed in the truth. And make no mistake, what you believe in more than anything else will set the course for your life more than everything else. And now we get to the heart of the matter. You see, because this is the real problem with sin. It's not the fact that you did something you were commanded not to do. No, that is but a symptom of the real problem. The real problem is the reason behind that disobedience. It's what you've placed your faith in, what you've chosen to believe in more than anything else. That's why we're saved by grace through faith and not by grace through the law. Because it's not about what you do and don't do. It's not about a list of rules. It's about what you actually believe in more than anything else. Which, of course, begs the question, what do you believe in more than anything else? Because the truth is there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus. They just believe in themselves a little more. It's the same lie that Lucifer believed in more than he did in what God said to him. It's the same lie that Adam and Eve believed in more than they did in what God said to them. It is the same lie that Judas believed in more than he did in what Jesus said to him. And it is the same lie that many Christians believe in today more than we do in what God has said to us. It's the lie that says it's okay to believe in yourself more than anything else. Of course, we don't usually think of it that way, but if you look at how so many believers live their lives, it's hard to deny that many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, believe in ourselves a little bit more than we do in Jesus Christ. It's not that we don't uh, believe in Him, of course. Right? When you're, when you're a child of God, when you're a follower of Christ, when you've submitted your life to Him and you receive His Spirit inside of you, your sins are eternally forgiven. You're no longer under the bondage of sin, and yet we still sin. Why? It's because we believe the lie, the lie that says we should come first, which is actually the foundation that all sin is built upon. It's not that we don't believe in Jesus. We just believe in ourselves a little more. It's not that we don't trust him. We just trust ourselves a little more. It's not that we don't love him. We just love ourselves a little more. This is the lie that is at the root of all of our sin that says it's okay to put myself first, which is exactly what happened in Eden, as we'll see today, as we continue working our way through the creation story, where the progression of sin that we began talking about two weeks ago continues to play out in the lives of these very first human beings, Adam and Eve, which culminates in the two of them believing this lie that we're talking about today. And yet it never starts there, right? No one wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll believe a lie today. 
No, it begins with something that is seemingly far more benign, something much more veiled than an outright lie. The progression of sin in our lives begins when we entertain temptation, which was the first point you'll remember in this two-part message titled The Fall, which we covered uh, last time, and it ends with us being separated from God. Even as believers, listen, even as Christians, sin affects our relationship with God and how we are able to relate to Him. Again, we covered all of that in detail in the first half of this message, how sin affects our relationship with God, even as Christians. So if, if you missed that sermon, you'd do well to watch it or listen to it when you can, because it frames the context for part two of this sermon, which we're covering today, where it's important that we not only understand the progression of sin in our lives, but that we expose the lie that is at the root of all of it. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Genesis 3. And we'll begin by reading verses 8 through 13, which is, uh, this is just after Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent, and then they ate the fruit of the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil, the, the one tree in the entire garden which they were commanded not to eat from. And so their eyes are now open to their own nakedness, and they're ashamed for the first time since God created them. Okay, Verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Remember that statement by Adam. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Well done, Adam. Way to man up, right? Then the Lord God said to the woman, who is this that, or what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In the first half of this message, we covered verses 1 through 7 of the chapter where the serpent tempted Eve, which is not in any way, shape, or form credited to the fault of Eve, by the way. In other words, experiencing temptation is not a facet of sin. The fact is, temptation is an inevitable part of living in a fallen world. For Adam and Eve, experiencing temptation wasn't the problem. Entertaining temptation was. That was the first point in this message that we covered last time, and it is where the progression of sin begins in our lives. So you understand it's not the presence of temptation that leads us into sin. Temptation is everywhere. It is rather when we entertain that temptation that we get ourselves into trouble because you remember the three points under number one. Temptation always dishonors the name of God. Temptation always contradicts the word of God. And temptation always challenges the authority of God. And, and again, we covered all of that already. So we won't go over it again today other than to point out where entertaining temptation can lead us. Because Adam and Eve, who just moments earlier were in a perfect relationship with the Creator, those same two people are now at this point in the story hiding in an utter state of panic from God. For the first time in their lives, they're hiding from God. And the truth is, 
the truth is we tend to breeze over this part of the story because in modern church history we've interpreted this passage simply to mean that Adam and Eve were embarrassed, maybe convicted about their sin, so they're trying to avoid God who is otherwise on his daily friendly stroll through the garden in the cool of the day, which is not at all what is actually happening here. To truly understand the sheer intensity of this scene and the horrifying reason that Adam and Eve were actually hiding from God in fear of their own lives. We need to understand the way the ancient Hebrew people to whom this story was originally written understood it. Which again is very different from what most of us have been taught in modern church history. When, when verse 8 says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The word sound in the ancient Hebrew is the word kol. It can refer to different kinds of sounds depending upon the context in which it is used in Scripture. One example being Exodus 9:23 and 24 where it refers to the thunder of judgment, of God's judgment. Keep that in mind. And then we look at the phrase in the cool of the day where the Hebrew word for cool, ruach, can mean either spirit or wind. But when it's connected to God's judgment over sin, it especially means a violent wind. Anytime God's judgment is at play. And then the word day, yom, in the Hebrew, when used in the context of God's judgment or God's anger towards sin, refers to a violent storm, such as we find in Isaiah 27, 8. Also Zephaniah 2, 2. And by the way... In many other ancient Semitic languages which are closely connected, such as the Akkadian language, this word always and only refers to a violent storm, always related to the judgment of a deity. Now when you factor all of that in to the context of what was happening in our story here, the first human beings on earth staging a rebellion against the direct command of God himself bringing about a curse upon the entire earth, the judgment of God which will profoundly affect all of its inhabitants thereafter. It makes far better sense to read this verse literally the way those early Hebrew people understood it. The literal translation using the words in the context of God's judgment over sin that was clearly happening in this passage. When you factor all of that in, we can translate this verse directly as saying, they heard the roar of the Lord moving about in the garden in the wind of the storm. Now, doesn't it make far more sense that Adam and Eve who for their entire existence up to this moment had only known the creative, compassionate, loving, very personal aspects of God's nature. Doesn't it make sense that they were running and hiding for their lives as the God of the universe for the first time in their existence was thundering his way through the garden in a violent storm in response to the evil of sin that had invaded the innocent perfection of his creation for the very first time. You remember what it said? He heard the sound of the Lord and he hid. So they covered themselves up as quickly as they could and they ran for cover. But there was nowhere to run. For the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God was coming straight for them and in the all-consuming fire of his presence they were undone. 
And the moment he calls them out for their sin, what happens? Everybody starts pointing fingers. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. The serpent, he doesn't point any fingers. I'm not sure he had any. But he was claiming no responsibility at all. No one owns up to their own sin. Why? Because they chose to believe a lie. And it is believing a lie that is the very essence of sin. And what, what was the lie they believed? Well, it wasn't the fact that the serpent told Eve their eyes would be opened if they ate of the forbidden fruit. That was actually true. So what was the lie? It wasn't the fact that the serpent said they would become like God, knowing good and evil if they ate of the fruit. No, that was actually true. You see, the lie that Adam and Eve believed was that it would be good for them to put what they wanted ahead of what God wanted. You see, this is the essence of all sin in this world. When we put our will ahead of God's will, when we believe in ourselves and what we tell ourselves more than we do in God and what he said to us, the result is nothing less than catastrophic devastation in the lives of our, ourselves and in the lives of those who love us. It's inevitable. It is the inevitable conclusion, in fact, to the progression of sin in our lives, as we'll see as we continue reading verses 14 through 16. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So in verses 14 and 15, God pronounces a curse upon the serpent where he says, On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And in ancient Near Eastern literature, the depiction of someone eating dust or dirt was typically a description of the netherworld or hell, which again... We find not only in uh, Hebrew literature, we find it in the Gilgamesh uh, epic. That's a collection of ancient Sumerian uh, poems from Mesopotamia. Also in the descent of Ishtar, uh, which is a, an Akkadian poem, an ancient Akkadian poem and others. And so this curse upon the serpent is not only referring to uh, the physical curse of crawling in the dirt on its belly, but very much a spiritual an eternal curse of hell for introducing sin to humanity. And then verse 16, God speaks directly to Eve when he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, which is the first consequence of believing the lie of sin that we find affecting the human race, where we see that the lie of sin separates us from each other. Why? Well, because it creates conflict between us. In 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the Apostle Paul poses the question, what fellowship has light with darkness? And again, to fully understand this, we have to understand the passage the way those early Hebrews did. Because to the ancient Hebrew man or woman, your entire identity 
was entirely wrapped up in the entire community of the Jewish people. In other words, ancient Hebrew culture was group-centered, where the whole of the community was seen as a single unit that was inextricably linked. What one did affected all, which was also then the very basis of not only how they viewed life, but how they viewed the fall of mankind here in Genesis 3, and the eventual victory, by the way, that we're promised over the enemy. And so when verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Our traditional interpretation of that verse in modern church history has been to recognize the offspring of Eve as Jesus Christ, according to Romans 16, 20, where the Apostle Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But again, that's actually not how the early Hebrew people interpreted this verse, and for good reason. First of all, uh, the messianic expectations of Israel didn't even come into being until the concept of a future king from David's line was a part of the collective conscience of the Jews much later. Secondly, nowhere in the entire Old Testament is Genesis 3.15 included in the Messianic expectations of Israel, nor does any of the intertestamental literature, the literature we have between the two testaments, none of that references Genesis 3.15 in its Messianic writings, including the abundantly rich Messianic writings of the Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thirdly, of all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament identified in the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament, there is not one direct reference in all of the New Testament that Jesus Christ fulfills Genesis 3.15. Again, the closest that we have is Romans 16.20, which we're going to come back to in a moment. Listen, but here's the point. No one is denying here that it is Jesus Christ who will ultimately defeat our enemy, okay? The Bible is abundantly clear about that in many places. That is absolutely true. Jesus will defeat our enemy. But this particular verse, Genesis 3.15, is actually referring to the community of believers, God's people as the offspring of Eve who are victorious over the enemy, which is how the ancient Hebrew people understood this scripture to begin with, that the fellowship of the community would eventually be restored in a victorious state over our common enemy, which Romans 16.20 actually confirms when Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Well, whose feet are your feet? Paul was writing this to the church. You see, he's saying that, yes, Jesus will soon crush Satan, under our feet, under the feet of the church, the community of God's people. Paul's actually contradicting what the modern church has been teaching about Genesis 3.15 for generations because probably he was, because he was a Jew who understood Genesis 3.15 and what it actually meant. Now, here's why it matters. Because we see in verse 16 that Adam and Eve's sin was guaranteed to tear at the very fabric of the relationship that the community was based upon. And isn't that just what we see happening today? Think about it. In every relationship where there's conflict, if you look close enough, what you will find at the root of that conflict is at least one of the people involved believing the lie that what they want 
is more important than anything else. Okay, if you're at odds with someone in your life and you're choosing to remain in conflict with that person until you get what you want, regardless of what God's word says, let me just be clear with you, that is sin. Because you've chosen to believe the lie that what you want is more important than what God wants. Listen, the, uh, the number of Christians today who willingly choose to allow their marriages to disintegrate over what they want, regardless of what God's word says about that marriage, is staggering. It's the lie that tears marriages apart. It's the lie that tears friendships apart. It's the lie that tears families apart. It's the lie that tears churches apart. It is the lie that destroys community among God's people, believing that what we want is what is most important, even when that's not what God wants. This is the very lie that has denigrated the moral fabric of our society to the point that we're no longer willing to distinguish good from evil, to the point that we value what we want even more than we value human life itself. Old Testament scholar John Walton writes, when a high school student who has hidden her pregnancy suddenly and prematurely delivers her child and in a panic of confusion discards it in a dumpster, criminal charges are pursued and news programs are filled with compassionate stories of how the baby's life was saved. Not a mile away in the dumpster of an abortion clinic, one can find the fragments of a child the same age, torn piece by piece from the womb of an equally confused high school student by the forceps of a certified physician. And the same news reporters who were horrified by the first student's actions support the claims to the rights of the second student and her doctors to exercise choice. The lie of sin tears at the fabric of the community that the Father created us to live in with other people and the sanctity of that community. And so thank God for Romans 16.20, which promises the restoration of that community as our enemy is defeated once and for all, absolutely by Jesus Christ, under the feet of the church which also means that we, as the church, have a responsibility to reject the lie that what we want is what is most important and instead show the world that what God wants is what is best for all of us. And we do that by being living examples in our own relationships every single day, preferring one another over ourselves, honoring His Word over our desires when those two are not the same, and rejecting the lie that anything, including ourselves, should ever come before Jesus Christ in our lives and in our relationships. Let's keep reading, verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So after addressing Eve, God now turns his attention to Adam 
where he pronounces a curse over everything that was originally given to Adam to rule over and to enjoy. So that what once existed for Adam's pleasure now exists for Adam's survival as the imminent threat of death looms over his daily life because he believed a lie. Right? He believed a lie. And so now he must procure food to keep himself alive. Not just for his enjoyment, because he believed a lie, he must now reproduce to keep the human race alive. Because he believed a lie, he must now contend with the earth to get what he needs in a way that he never did before. Because he believed a lie, there is now an urgency to Adam's existence that he's never had to face before. You see, for Adam, everything has changed. Adam and Eve thought that by eating the forbidden fruit, they would gain autonomy, independence from God. When instead, because they believed a lie, they were now more dependent on the mercy and graciousness of God and His creation and each other than ever before. What was once freely given must now be earned through struggle and pain and toil, all because they believed a lie that said if they put themselves first, They would receive a greater blessing when in reality the lie of sin separates us from God's blessings. It's not that we we no longer receive His blessings. Certainly we do. It's just that the manner by which we receive them has changed drastically because of sin, which was now being reflected in the loss of harmony that humans once had with the entire natural world, not just the Garden of Eden. In ancient times, uh, the philosophical worldview of the Greeks was Hellenistic, which among other things meant that to them, there was a separation between each part of their lives. So uh, work, recreation, religion, worship, community, God, individuals, everything was separated for its own existence and its own purpose. Whereas the Hebrew people were holistic in their thought, meaning everything to them was connected specifically by God. So work and uh, recreation and religion and worship and community and God and individuals, all of that was sacred because it all belonged to God and it all came from God in the form of blessings to us. And so when Adam and Eve chose to believe the lie that that what they wanted should come before what God wanted. They didn't just break a specific rule or a specific command not to eat from a particular tree. No, they violated the entire sacred balance between God and the rest of all of His creation. It was a devastatingly tragic event that would affect the way that humanity experiences God's blessings for the remainder of our time on this earth. The truth is, you cannot overstate the magnitude of this curse on the natural world because of the lie that Adam and Eve chose to believe in. And that's just how sin works today. The lie of sin, listen, The lie of sin will always tell you what you stand to gain without ever telling you what you stand to lose. And so I I think if we could simply learn 
to take pause when temptation comes, to take some time to actually consider the innumerable blessings in your life that you stand to lose by believing the lie of sin. If you would do that when experiencing temptation and just allow the reality of what you stand to lose to knock the wind out of you before you take that leap, I think if we did that, a lot less people would jump headlong into the lie of sin that says, I I should come first. I can't tell you how many people I've counseled with over the years who've experienced devastating losses because of sin. People who've said to me, if I could just go back and talk to myself before all of this started, I never would have done what I did. I never would have done what I did because it wasn't worth everything that I've lost, not by a long shot. The lie of sin will always tell you what you stand to gain without ever telling you what you stand to lose. Ravi Zacharias once said, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Okay? Whatever it is that sin is promising you, I guarantee you, whatever it is that you stand to gain from believing the lie of sin, it is not worth everything that you stand to lose. Not by a long shot. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So at the end of this tragically sad chapter in the history of humankind, we're simultaneously given signs of a future hope, and at the same time, the devastating reality of the most serious consequence of sin. First, Adam names his wife Eve, which means life giver, and second, God clothes them, which shows that he's covering their shame and that he still loves and cares for them even in their sin. Certainly all allusions to our future hope and a new life in Christ. And yet at the same time, God drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, out of paradise, most importantly, out of the constant fellowship with him that they were used to, where they now had to face the harsh reality that the lie of sin separates us from God. And of course, we know that as unbelievers, we were completely severed from any relationship with God whatsoever before we came into relationship with Christ. We were completely severed from fellowship with Him. But when we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Because Jesus took care of every single one of them on the cross. Listen, every sin you've ever committed and every sin you are ever going to commit was atoned for once and for all through His shed blood on the cross, which means we are righteous in Christ, and yet, obviously, we're not yet perfected. 
right? Not until the day of redemption, which means, of course, that we still, even as Christians, we still sin. We still at times believe the lie of sin. We still fail. We still put ourselves first at times. And every time we do that, listen, there's a very real effect on how we are able to relate to God in that moment, even as Christians. We talked about this in part one of this sermon two weeks ago, how the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians. First Peter 3, 7, our prayers can actually be hindered by our sin. It says God won't listen to us if we mistreat our wives. The Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in Ephesians 4, 30, that our sin can actually grieve the Holy Spirit within us. James, the brother of Jesus, talks about the effects of sin on the Christian in James chapter 2. The Apostle John talks about the effects of sin on Christians in 1 John 1. The fact is, when Christians believe the lie of sin, our fellowship with God is deeply affected because sin pushes us away from Him. That's why we need Jesus. Because only he can bridge that gap. Only he can span the chasm that our sin creates between us and God. And yet again, to truly understand the depth of destruction that sin causes in our relationship with the Father, we must understand this chapter and the story of humanity the way those early Hebrews understood it. Because in our modern thinking, we tend to see the great tragedy of sin in light of what it has done to us. Not so for the Hebrew. No, in Israel, the greatest tragedy of the fall was not the change in human nature or the change in the heart condition of mankind. For the Hebrew, the greatest tragedy of the fall was the loss of access to the presence of God. In fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, no one ever talks about regaining the comfort of Eden or the perfection of paradise. But over and over and over and over again, they talk about regaining access to the presence of God. For Israel, the overwhelming loss in the fall was not paradise or their best life now. No, the overwhelming loss for Israel was the loss of the presence of the Father. That is the single greatest tragedy of our sin. The distance that it creates between us and Him. Again, John Walton writes, the bulk of Old Testament literature regarding sin comes in the ritual text. For example, Leviticus 1-7, through where the greater emphasis is on the effect of our sin on God. Sin defiles God's presence and prevents us from access to Him. The most vile aspect of human sin is not what it did to each of us, but what it did to God. Our sin is a desecration of God. The, the, this desecration does not alter who He is, but it dishonors Him. The most lamentable result of sin to an Israelite is not that it makes people bad, but that it makes God distant. You see, the lie of sin separates us from Him. And isn't it telling that that is how it all started with Lucifer in the very presence of God Himself? Uh, the name Lucifer means morning star or day star. We know from Ezekiel 28 verses 13 and 15 that God assured Satan or Lucifer that he was a created being. In verse 12 he says that Lucifer was the signet of perfection, full of wisdom. So clearly, Lucifer wasn't stupid. 
He wasn't simple-minded. No, he was, in fact, brilliant, incredibly intelligent and wise. Not to mention the fact that he was one of the few beings created who was in the presence of God himself around the clock. So how in the world could this extremely intelligent, wise, in the inner circle of God angel who is face to face with the almighty God on a constant basis, how could he of all beings possibly think that he could become like God? It just baffles the mind. It seems hard to imagine, doesn't it, that someone so intelligent, so perfect, in fact, someone who's constantly in the presence of God would actually believe that he could become like God unless, unless he didn't actually believe the truth that he was created. What if Lucifer came to believe a lie? It's the only explanation that makes sense. There are actually scholars and theologians, many of them, who've suggested that he must have believed that he and the other angels and God actually came about out of nothing. And over time, they evolved into their ultimate state of existence. And only because God had been formed or evolved before them, he was able to deceive so many of the angels into believing they were created by him. In other words, maybe Lucifer convinced himself that God was pulling a fast one on the angels and so believing his own great lie and blinded by his own pride. Verse 17 of Ezekiel 28 says that he corrupted his wisdom. And we know that he began to believe a lie, his own deception, believing that he would become like God or that he could make himself like God, which is spelled out in Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. And of course, much of our society today Believes what? That we evolved out of nothing. And that we're all like gods in our own right, ever evolving into a higher state of existence. And what did Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, according to Revelation 12, 9, what did he say to Eve that would happen to her if she ate of the forbidden fruit? He said she would become like God. It makes sense, doesn't it? That Lucifer would use his own deception to deceive the world. Now, of course, some of that is conjecture by scholars. We don't know for certain, but what we know, he must have believed a lie. Had to. Or he never would have done what he did. And what happened? It separated him from God. The greatest tragedy of our sin. The fact of the matter is, whatever, whatever it is that you believe in more than anything else, that will set the course for your life more than everything else. We see that throughout Scripture. What you place your faith in, what you choose to believe in, will determine where your life ends up. That's what happened to Lucifer. That's what happened to Adam and Eve. That's what happened to Israel. And that is what has been happening in the lives of men and women ever since. You see, it's not that Lucifer didn't believe in God. Obviously, he did. He just believed in himself a little more. Adam and Eve clearly believed in God. They just believed in themselves a little more. Israel believed in God. They just believed in themselves a little more. And I think there are a lot of Christians today who believe in Jesus Sometimes we just believe in ourselves a little more. This is the lie 
that is at the root of all of our sin. And I'm telling you, there's only one remedy. There's only one antidote. There's only one answer that can set us free from that very lie, and his name is Jesus. He's the truth that conquers every lie. He's the truth that defeats every deception. He's the truth that overcomes every bondage, the lie of sin in our lives, which means no matter how far you may have fallen away from God in your life, the absolute, undeniable, objective truth is that Jesus Christ can overcome that lie and redeem your life today. Amen. The fact is, he wants to do that for you. Right now. Let's pray.